This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In a career spanning 34 years, Edward Breen has faced many difficult situations. Perhaps none as challenging as his most recent assignment, CEO of Tyco International, which he took on when the company was facing bankruptcy. In an interview with Wharton management professor Michael Useem, Breen, who just stepped down from Tyco, talks about the importance of knowing when and how to make the bold, big decisions, mentoring, and always raising your hand for assignments. So, um, Ed, welcome to Knowledge of Wharton. We're going to talk about your rather uh, amazing career. You worked at General Instruments. You were number two, the president of Motorola. For the last 10 years, you've run uh, Tyco. I'm going to begin in the middle of um, all the above. You were number two at Motorola. Tyco got into a lot of trouble with uh, malfeasance at the top. You were recruited to come in as the chief executive at the end of July 2002. And as I recall, you're in your office at Motorola, knowing that at the end of the day, you're going to be announced as the new chief executive of Tyco, then a company of almost a quarter million employees, huge enterprise. And across the ticker on the screen on your desk, it said, Tyco to declare bankruptcy. So picking up on that, tell us about that day. And then as you went to New York and took the reins on that following Monday with all the uh, extraordinary attention to the malfeasance of the people who were running Tyco, the fact that it was a huge company with uh, businesses all over the world. You did have to take control, had to take charge. Talk us through that transition. <laughs> well, the day that that, uh, I think that was a Thursday, late July, uh, that came across the screen that Tyco was uh, looking at declaring bankruptcy. Uh, it, was, it just showed me what was about to happen as I entered into this uh, new career because it was just chaos for the first months, and events were like that every day. Um, but, you know, what, what was kind of scary about that uh, when that did occur, or at least those, the talk about it occurred, is the stock really continued to plunge. And if I remember the numbers right, um, on that day specifically, the stock had opened around $12.00 and ended the day around $8 a share. So that's a huge percentage drop uh, in a company that's already got a lot of other chaos going on around it. So um, yeah, so that was the backdrop to, I guess, a couple hours later, my announcement coming out that I was taken over as chairman and uh, CEO of the company. Um, you know, when I went in, I started, uh, I was going to take a week off, and uh, I was advised by many people, including the outside lawyers at Tyco, you better not, there's not time here. Uh, so I started, got, got back from Chicago, started the uh, next Monday. Um, it, it was sort of surreal uh, because when you go into a crisis situation like that, and especially a crisis like this one at Tyco, uh, one of your concerns is who can you trust, who can you rely on. And here I am in an environment around a corporate team. Obviously, a lot of them knew what was going on because you can't pull off the shenanigans that happened without other people helping you. So uh, to me, that was a big concern day one. How did I work my way through uh, that situation? Who could I trust and how could I start to rebuild uh, the team at Tyco as quickly as I could? Let me ask about that because within so many months of the 300 top people at Tyco, some 290 were gone. And within eight months, the board that had hired you itself was gone. And talk us through why you made that 
almost a complete house cleaning at the top, both in management and the board. Looking back on that also, do you have any regrets such that you would have done it a bit differently? Yeah, you know, I've been asked that question a lot, and, and, and there are different ways to handle it, but I, I came to the conclusion very quickly with, with what occurred at Tyco, um, there was no one that was going to believe this was a different company if it wasn't a different management team and a different board. Uh, so what really helped me to give you one example is we had five or six agencies investigating us. Well, how do you go to the Justice Department or the SEC and say, look, we really are a different company and we're going to manage differently if the board of directors isn't different than the group that had been there before? So there's a lot of nice people on that board. And to this day, I actually talk to most of them still, uh, but it wasn't the right thing to do for them to stay. So I came to that conclusion very early on. And, you know, everyone said, geez, Ed, you can't do that. It's never happened in corporate America before. No board has stepped down uh, together. And, uh, you know, there's always first. And it was the right thing to do. It was a clean break. And you could honestly look someone in the eyes and say, this is going to be a different company, and we're going to run it different. And on top management, why wholesale house cleaning well, over the next six months? You know, most a lot of senior people in a company, especially a conglomerate the size of Tyco, reside at the corporate office. You know, so you have your old tax group, your treasury group, your accounting group, your controllership group. Um, and, and I, you know, within days said they, they know – what happened here? And they were complicit in some way in it, in my opinion. And, you know, if you can't have people around you you're not going to trust that aren't your team players. So I didn't have time to figure out that I get everyone right um, or not. I just decided we had to rebuild every department basically from scratch and that I would do it over, you know, pretty much the first year because you can't just ask everyone to walk out the door. You can't run a company. Uh, but you know, over about a year, maybe a year and a half period of time, uh, you know, we turned the whole team over and hired who we wanted on our team. Along that line, several of your directors resisting exiting the board did argue that there was going to be a lot of tacit information lost if they Correct. all left and all the top management left since everybody did leave. Uh, how impactful was it to have almost nobody there left that knew all the informal things that are not written down but are critical for any company to operate yeah, well, one of the things we did, um, one of the compromises we had, and I thought it was a very good compromise, was that we would keep two directors from the prior board to transition for one year with the new Tyco board, but they weren't voting members of the board. But they came to all the board meetings because you do need institutional knowledge. You know, how did this deal happen? You know, there's just a lot of questions uh, that can come up. So we had a very nice transition with them. Um, two of the directors for that period of time. And then what, what I relied on a lot um, was outside people to help us. We had investment bankers in. We had a consulting company in. I had David Boys, I'd say one of the best lawyers um, that there is. Um, I had a, a, a PR firm that we brought in. So I kind of, kind of called it rent the corporate team for a while. And they got to know the company well. And they helped me through the transition as we rehired the departments. But there was a fair amount of knowledge with them that had built up over this whole investigative period of time. To convince attorneys general for states that were thinking about possibly indicting Tyco, to convince the big institutional holders that you had really transformed governance at Tyco, uh, you made a whole range of changes such that in the estimate of one of the rating agencies, you went from worst to first. It took a couple years to do that. Working with you, you had a lead director named Jack Kroll. You had a senior VP for corporate governance, Eric Pilmore. 
the three of you really remade governance at Tyco. What was the essence of the remake? What got in the way? What are some of the lessons coming out of that particular set of events to remake governance at the yeah, top? Yeah, you know, what was exciting about it is we kind of got to take the book clean again and rewrite it. And we came up with all our own governance principles. And we really researched what are the best practices. And we picked them from different companies. So uh, we really, I think, picked the best solutions, um, kind of state-of-the-art solutions in about there. And by over my 10 years, we've continued to add things to our governance policies and procedures um, that I think have been very impactful. And yeah, I, th I think you're right. We had a, uh, one of the firms that rates shown governance rated us with only a handful of companies with a 10 score, um, you know, a few years after I was there. But, but a few of the things we did, which at the time were very unique, was we had actual positions in the company report directly to the board and not to me. So for instance, we had Eric Pilmore, who was a head of corporate governance. And by the way, most companies didn't have a head of corporate governance, just as one example. But the second part of that is we had Eric report to the board of directors. We had the head of our audit committee report to the audit committee. And we had our ombudsman report to the audit committee. So you know, you look at, well, what happened to Tyco and some of the other companies that blew up with some of the malfeasance? There was no system around the, C the, the CEO who was all powerful. And in our case, we changed that by reporting structures as one key example. Now, I think many more companies have done that nowadays, but back then that was very unique. Yeah, that was a lot of the hard work in the first 12 or 18 months. You had a huge uh, debt coming due, $11 billion due in January, February, the coming year. Within a year or so, you had stabilized, uh, cash flow became regular. A lot of the, all the investigations were behind you. Ten years later now, you're executive uh, chair of the board. Uh, looking back on those ten years, uh, crisis, stability, you've gone through a couple breakups of Tyco as well. Of all the big decisions you've made, which one are you most proud of looking back over the ten years as chief executive? Well, I, I don't know if it's, I guess the most rewarding uh, one would be um, saving Tyco. Um, it really got close. Um, we didn't know it. We saved it really till the second week of January. So I'd been there six months uh, when we did. I think at the time it was the largest convertible bond offering ever done. And then I've, I, that night I realized, wow, people are behind us. They want to invest in the company. And they, they just gave us the breathing room now to go fix all these issues. So I, that was the most proud. I'd say the most difficult decision, which I'm extremely proud of also, is taking Tyco and making six companies out of it. Five are public. One is private and all the companies are doing extremely well um, and all trading at all-time highs. And, uh, you know, I think it was absolutely the right strategy for the company, but that's not an easy decision to make. Let's think about what made for that ability to get through an extraordinary period. Looking back to your time before you came to Tyco, maybe even much earlier in your career, is there an individual or maybe even a couple that helped you become the person you are, a mentor, a coach, somebody that influenced your life? In yeah, you, you know, I was, I think, very fortunate. At a young age, um, I was at General Instrument, uh, the, the largest supplier of cable technology to the, cable, uh, the, the nascent cable industry just growing. So I grew up around all these entrepreneurs that created, created these big media companies. John Malone, he owned a part of mm -hmm. GI. I, he invested with me. Uh, back in the late 90s, the Roberts family at Comcast, um, my, my great mentor, Frank Drendel, who's run Comscope for 40 years. Um, and these were entrepreneurs. And I, what I learned from them, and I, I think I've taken forward, 
um, through my career was they, they were very decisive. They studied things, but they knew how to make a decision, the bold, big decisions that need to be made. And I've watched a lot of management. They can't make the big decisions, and they drag and delay. And there's always a competitor crawling right behind you wanting to pass you. And uh, I think that was a great experience for me in my 20s. And then, you know, the one that sort of then built on that was we took GI Private with Ted Forsman, Forsman Little, one of the great private equity firms. And when you learn in a private situation is every decision, it's almost like it's your company. What do you want to do with your company? And it's an interesting way to look at it. You know, you don't worry about every constituency. It's our company. And I've always tried to keep that in mind when I make the big, difficult decisions. Is this what Ed Breen really thinks needs to be done for the company and pretend it's mine. And to some extent it is. And, you know, not worry about, well, what, is, what are they, this group going to think, this investor group? What are the debt holders going to think? What, I always try to think purely what is the right decision. And the right decision at the end of the day is um, what creates long-term sustainable shareholder value. And if you keep that line at the tip of your tongue when you make a decision, you're generally going to have some pretty good results. Ed, let's pick up on that. I'd like you to describe, if you wouldn't mind, a moment of decision, a time when your leadership was on the line. Maybe a Tyco, maybe a GI, maybe a Motorola. Pick a moment that best exemplifies your leadership, how you approach things. Just describe it, interpret it for us. Well, I'll give you, um, let's take GI. I think, and by the way, in a whole career, I've had a 34-year career, I was thinking through this the other day. I've probably made 10 really big decisions that really, really mattered, that moved the needle in a big way. And one was GI when uh, we developed the first digital technology for the whole industry, and it was too expensive for anyone to want to buy. And everyone is trying to take our position away from us, Microsoft, Cisco, Samsung, Sony. And what we did is decided to sell warrants in our company to our customers or give them to them if they would buy our digital set-top boxes from us. And we locked up two-thirds of the industry within a couple weeks. The industry ended up owning 15% of the company. And, you know, if you go back and look at the GI history, that's what made the company take off. We won the digital war. And um, a company that was valued at $1.6, $1.7 billion, we sold to Motorola for $18 billion. So that's a situation if you worry about every other issue besides creating long-term shareholder value, a lot of people wouldn't do that kind of deal. Um, it was absolutely the right deal for us. If I can ask, where did the idea come to do it that way with your customers? You know, it was a small, it was a small group of us. Um, John Malone, who ran the largest cable operator at the time, which was TCI in Denver. Mm -hmm. um, Frank Drendel, my mentor, who also ran a cable supply business and still to this day is involved and uh, myself, um, and with uh, consultation with Ted Forsman, head of Forsman Little. Ed, let me have you look back on your career in a little bit of a different way. What do you know now, especially after 10 years at Tyco, about leading private enterprise that you would not necessarily have appreciated earlier in your career? Well, there's a couple things I think are big. Um, what you learn when you're in the top seat is there really are a lot of constituents you have, when there's a big decision, you really got to think this through. Um, again, I always look at it, number one, is it going to create long-term shareholder value? But after that is, how do I address the employees? How do I address our suppliers? How do I address our investors, the analysts? And you just go right down the list. There's a lot of things you need to think about and take into account. 
uh, when you make some of the big decisions you make. And, you know, I think the other thing part of this is going through, you know, people have put me in situations where there's a crisis. I'm a big believer in, from a management standpoint, the senior management team, spending a lot of your time on the big swings, the big strategy questions. Because what tends to happen when you come up in a company, we all fight fires all day. The phone's ringing all day. We're sending emails. This happened, that happened. And you have to deal with those things. But what happens to the management teams, they, the wheels just keep spinning. They don't take the time to think about the big swings that's really going to move the needle. And um, I think I learned that at a younger age because of some of the things I went through. And if you focus on those, things will really progress. Let's turn the question on its head. Is there some aspect of leadership, again, in, in your recent experience, which turns out, or some precept of leadership that turns out not to be as true as you thought it was true or not as much needed as you thought it might have been needed early in your career? Is there anything about leadership thinking that turns out to be uh, just not on the money? Well, I don't, I don't know if people think this way, but, but you, you know, you can have a great individual and a CEO or head of a division. Um, but I guess the thing I learned along the way, you really have to work on talent management and people and their development and really care about your team. Um, it, it, I always put it to a sports analogy. Sports teams talk about who's going to play in the next game. That's all they talk about. How do I win the game? Who's going to play? And a lot of companies don't think like that. They don't spend time on the people stuff. And uh, there's no one individual going to make a company. Um, so I always want to put people around me I think are better than me, will challenge me, that can take my position. And by the way, five of them have. We've created five public company CEOs. We didn't hire them. We create, you know, we developed them. Um, I think that's one thing where people don't spend enough time um, at it. I, I, I might conclude that comment by, because I know I would say in um, recent years, maybe because of some of the scandals, you, people get a, a misimpression of a lot of CEOs. 99.9% .9 of CEOs are great people. They work hard and they think about their company seven days a week, um, you know, trying to do the right things. Let's uh, take that same question and think about somebody who's age 20 coming out of an undergraduate business program, a 29-year-old MBA graduate. Looking back again on your experience, what advice would you have for somebody who would obviously not follow precisely in your footsteps, but somebody who has a lot of interest in taking significant responsibility in the private sector? So for their leadership, what advice would you have? Well, I, I would say a couple are just kind of higher level comments, um, but I think are most important. You, you, you want, first of all, you have to be passionate about what you're going to do or you're never going to get to the top seat. Um, and you see it in people. You know, are they just doing this because it's a job or they're making a lot of money at it or are they passionate about what they're doing? So you, I would just stress to anybody coming out of school, do something you feel passionate about because somehow it's going to just make you bubble to the top. It just is the way it is. And I, I know that in my company is what I look at in everyone. Are they passionate or not? Secondly, I would say kind of high level, um, but very important is be a team player. You're not going to get there individually by, you know, not. you got to be a team player. Especially if you get to be a CEO, it's all your team. Um, so you got to be a big-time team player. And maybe the third thing I would say, and I'm looking back on my experience, raise your hand for as many assignments as you can. There, in companies, there's always an extra project team. You keep your job, you work on an extra project or interdepartmental teams. Raise your hand and get the experience. Um, it's the best way to move up in a company. And by the way, you get known that way. And what I would always look, and I was fortunate, find a mentor. Ed, a final question here as we break off. 
Looking back at GI, looking at Motorola, looking at your ten years at Tyco, uh, hundreds of period, hundreds of moments, probably thousands of decisions, ten big ones you said along the way here. What stands out as the best moment in a period, especially a Tyco early years, which were grueling, demanding? But looking back at all the above, what, what was your most outstanding, most rewarding, best remembered experience? Well, you know, it was actually um, very, it was the six months into being at Tyco. Um, we had a, we were going to raise money, convertible bond offering, and we did a conference call from our boardroom. And then my CFO and I were going to go on a road trip for a week and a half to go raise the money, conjure up the interest. And at the end of that call, someone walked down my office and said, Ed, this deal's 30 times oversubscribed. That night, uh, I went out with most of my team, and I, I remember calling up my wife, and I said, you know what? We're going to make it now. Now I have the time to go fix the company, put the operating systems in I want, hire the people I want, um, really take our time and do this thing right. That, that to me, was probably the most rewarding, because those first six months, uh, yeah, it was tough looking in the mirror some mornings. A, a turning point indeed. Yeah, it really was a turning point. So, Ed Breen, thank you for joining Knowledge of Wharton today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.